this week on the Backtable Podcast. Sometimes expect to make mistakes in these scenarios. You know, you're coming in with limited information, you have limited time. I think that these are one of these scenarios where you can do everything right and still not have it work out. And it doesn't mean there's any bad players involved. You know, like we mentioned before, there are so many people that leave their practice after just two years. And, you know, statistically, that means it's highly unlikely that you're going to join a practice out of residency and retire with that practice. There's not a natural progression. You're not going to have all of the answers. And so I think that you have to give yourself a little bit of grace and a little bit, you know, don't beat yourself up too hard if there things happen because, you know, things do happen. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. We're a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. My name is Ashley Agan. I'll be one of your hosts today, joined by the lovely Gopi Shaw. Good morning, Gopi. Good morning, Ash. I love getting to podcast with you and being across the mic again. I know. It's the best. It's the best. We have an awesome guest today. We have Dr. Christopher Gentile. He's a general otolaryngologist practicing in Atlanta, Georgia. He completed his otolaryngology residency at the University of Alabama in Birmingham in 2021. Chris is here to talk to us today about lessons he's learned from his first year out in practice. Welcome to the show, Chris. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Gopi and Ashley. All right. So just to get started, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself, like your background, your journey and your current practice. Yeah. Well, I'm originally from New Jersey. So I'm a Northeastern actually. I went up to school in Pennsylvania and then completed my medical training down at Wake Forest in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It's actually where I ended up getting exposed to ENT. My dad had P16 positive squamous cell while I was a medical student. So I'd never known what ENT was until that whole experience. But he's doing well now. It's about 12 years out, but that was kind of my exposure or foray into ENT. The match into UAB, and I met my wife there, actually, Lori, who's a PZNT out here in Atlanta as well. So when I graduated, I followed her out this way and then joined a private practice, was there for a year and spent about a year doing locums, two different locums for a time period. And then now I'm back into private practice again out in Northeast Atlanta. It's a rapidly growing group with six other partners. We have about three offices out here, but it's been, it's been great so far. Been a few months in. Awesome. That is awesome. So tell us that first year out, our first few years out, I feel like there's so many different things. It's like this big learning curve with so many different aspects of whether it's professionally within the clinic, the business aspect of it. Personally, maybe, you know, you're expanding your family, different changes. There's so much going on. Tell us just a little bit about things that occurred that, you know, you anticipated. These are some of the things that I thought was going to happen. And, you know, this is some things that were, yeah, this is the normal expectation that was part of the course for you. Yeah, I think one of the things I was a little prepared for was I knew it would be difficult. In residency, there's a lot of incremental growth as you go throughout and you have, a, you know, these goalposts. But when you're out, I was told by most of my attendings that their first year out or first two years out were really difficult to kind of get their bearings, to kind of understand what their role is, understand what their capabilities and limitations are. And so I kind of had an understanding that it would be difficult. How difficult was a little bit of a surprise, but I knew that it would be difficult. Other things that I was warned about and that I was prepared for, you don't think about if you're not staying on at your local program, then you know, you're know you going out to somewhere where you've never been. So equipment can be drastically different. So I had gotten a whole list of different OR equipment and things that we used in clinic before I had left. And so that way, you know, you're not in the middle of a neck dissection wondering what those curvy scissors were called that you always like to use or 
what kind of facial nerve monitors you want. Yeah. What did you expect or what were you looking for when you were picking that first job? I wanted a, a different experience. I wanted it to be pretty comprehensive. I wanted to do a little bit of everything. You know, it really varies geographically where you are. You can be in the middle of a metro and you can get very niche very quickly. For me, I wanted to be a little bit more out in the community. And you're basically the first pass. You're seeing basically everything that walks in through the door, ENT problems and not ENT problems alike. So you were looking for kind of this broad experience. I mean, when I think back when I was a resident, at least at our residency, it was a tertiary medical center. Like we saw like really complicated things and didn't really have a rotation that resembled anything of what a general private practice might look like, you know, and we have, you know, a lot of residents going into private practice every year. And yet it's hard to even know what that's going to look like, because as a resident, you don't really get any sort of experience or exposure to what a, you know, a true kind of general ENT clinic would look like. Did you get much exposure as a resident to just kind of general ENT? Not as much. We did have some general ENTs in our program. But I think due to the fact that we were at an academic institution, you know, at a tertiary center, they form small niches because they're typically, it's not a first pass. Very often they're getting referrals from the community ENTs. So we had someone that was, for a generalist, was very heavy into head and neck, sleep and salivary pathology. And we had one person that came in very experienced that was, his passion was, was a chronic ear and another person was into endocrine. And so I don't think I was prepared. I didn't understand what it meant to be in a clinic, out in the community, and you were seeing someone could have walked past the office and see ENT and you're like, well, I have an ear, nose, anthro. I'm going to pop in there today and see if they can see me. It's funny that you, you all mentioned that. So for me, I stayed on where I trained. I trained at my fellowship at, for peds at UT and Santa Dallas for eight years. And even the first years in a known location, in a known place where I knew the equipment was hard. And the most common questions that I would call Ron Mitchell or my mentors, my bosses about were ear tubes, right? When do I, should I take the tube out? Are the tubes clogged? What do I do with that? Or the runny nose kit that had the adenoids out. Should I do Flonase? Oh, do I have to, how long do I have to do Flonase for? Is that one spray? Do y'all do that? Twice? I mean, it's that general, right? It's still those general questions. I think those first few years out, because we're so in training, doing the high, you know, helping out with the, high, the care of the high-end tertiary quaternary head, neck, airway recons, like stuff that isn't the bread and butter of majority of our practices. Chris, you mentioned, you told us some of the things that you were prepared for. And I think taking especially the OR setups for the, you know, oh, I like the way they do their ears. Let me get their OR list or let me make sure in clinic I have this microscope section. All that's very helpful. Tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that were unexpected for you your first year out. There was uh, definitely a few things. On the clinical aspect, I think that when you're fresh out, you're trying to close the loop with every single patient. They get lost to follow up or you're getting a biopsy on them. You know, I would have a little list on the side of my desk with the name, date of birth, what the biopsy was, and we're following these things up. And I guess I didn't appreciate how quickly that can get out of hand. You're taking a lot of biopsies, you're seeing a lot of people, you know, I have a separate list for, I need to ask my wife this question or I need to ask somebody else this question. I need to look this up. And so when you're trying to provide global care and you're trying to close every single loop and you're seeing a full slate of patients and you're taking call, I don't think I appreciated how difficult that would be. In residency, you're in clinic, that patient is, you're seeing them in a snapshot of time and the answer is, what are we doing today? Are they going to go into the OR and when or not? Or what is the treatment? And then that's really often the last time you'll see that patient unless 
you see them on a different service or they come back while you're on call or something like that. But that was really hard clinically for me. From the contractual spot, that could be an entire podcast and all in itself. You know, I actually had listened to your podcast on uh, contract negotiations earlier this year and I was cringing while listening to it. Is that because you're just thinking back how you, you didn't know what you didn't know at that time? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of things, you know, I think there's definitely some things I would have done differently. Some of the advice that I had received before, you know, with respects to engaging an attorney on the front end or someone to look over the contract was, you know, send it to a few people and if they say it's fair, it's fair. And if you understand your contract line through line, you won't necessarily need one because, you know, I can read English pretty well. And so what I found on the back end when you're exiting and it's not all the warm and fuzzies of recruitment is that people that see these contracts on a regular basis understand that there are certain language nuances that be protective for you. And so I didn't allow myself to get a lot of those protections on the way on the way out. And so that was a little, it was a little painful, especially given the timing of it. But you live, you live the fight another day. But for us, what I've realized is that things can be in writing in a contract. And if you don't protect yourself on the front end, you can get hurt on the back end just due to the ways things are, the way people can interpret certain things. You know, in my specific example, I came to the end of a financial year and I, for us, it's always about the incentive bonus when you're in practice. And so, you know, I guess I was under the impression that the more you collected, the more you would take home. And I guess that wasn't the practice's interpretation. So in that dispute, the employment basically was ended pretty abruptly, which, you know, again, was also in the contract. But, you know, you don't go in, you don't sign these contracts thinking about leaving, especially when you're a resident and you're reading these things in the OR lounge between cases. Who did you talk to, Chris? Like, it's your first year out, and this is a, a pretty unexpected situation to handle. Who did you reach out to? Some of it was my attendings, you know, a lot of my academic attendings at the time. I reached out to, obviously, my wife, who was already in private practice out in Atlanta. We were distanced for three years at that point. And so that was pretty much the extent of that time. I felt like the contract was pretty simple, pretty boilerplate for the most part. My wife would reach out to some people that she knew in the area, but I don't think any of them specifically read over the contract itself. And so for you, I don't know how much you want to get into the specifics, but what was the issue in that mostly like an interpretation of compensation at the end of the day? Was that kind of where things went awry? I think that was one of the main cause. Essentially, mine's not to go into specifics, but it was a graded response. And so it was collection based by tiers. And so it would say, you collect this percentage at this tier, this percentage at this tier. And if you collect this and above, you collect this percentage. And then so my understanding and experience, you know, especially with paying income taxes is typically that things, these tiers are cumulative. So as you're collecting a certain amount, there shouldn't be areas where you would make less and you have to catch back up. And I got to the end of the year, I kind of, you know, I had a big spreadsheet. I was keeping track of everything. And I was expecting a certain amount. And then the amount that came with me was a little less. And so what I found their understanding of the contract was that because the tiers didn't have the word and in between them, that they were not cumulative. So you would only collect the tier that you happened to land in. And so I made the comment, I think that essentially meant that as you crossed a tier, you would wipe away your gains from the prior one. You'd have to make back up a certain amount of collections just to break even again, which was not my understanding of the contract or, or most people's. 
Do you have any recommendations or advice or what you're doing going forward to help you become on the same page as the practice you're going to be joining or the hospital that might be employing you? Do you have any tips on what do I need to make sure to do? Whatever part of the contract, especially when it comes to compensation, but even, you know, other terms, what is the best way for people to get on the same page or what have you found to be helpful now? Honestly, having a good contract attorney, I think when you're a resident, every time you hear the word attorney, you cringe. And even still now, a little bit, I have some friends that are lawyers and we get along just fine, but there's this, this real hesitation to do it. Also, you know, the price, you're a resident, the price of paying somebody up front to review a contract for something that you feel you could read. I think the value in it is essentially that a lot of contract attorneys engage people like me after the fact. And so they have the experience of saying, okay, well, this is where I've seen clients that have had this exact issue because this wording wasn't in the contract. You're not adding anything. I would just say this or, you know, ways to clarify it. I made the mistake of assuming that my understanding was the general understanding. And that could have pretty easily been cleared up in the very beginning in a very non-obtrusive way, most likely, if I had just thought to engage some expert counseling. And again, they do this for a living. And so it's not as intrusive as it. It's not like I'm going to get my lawyers and they're going to talk to your lawyers and then we're going to go back and forth across the table kind of thing. Yeah. And in in looking back, if you were talking to your younger self or if you were kind of putting yourself in those shoes again, would there have been an opportunity to just engage with your practice manager or your colleagues there to kind of make sure you're on the same page about how the tier system works or was the culture not open to talking about money? I think it would have been Honestly, the hard thing in that scenario is that I was a resident. I still remember where I was reading those contracts. And so you had just enough time to maybe put something in the microwave at night when, you, when you're when you getting home. I did wish I put a little bit more forethought into reaching out to more people. I did talk to a few people, but you know the, the topic of finances and money is uncomfortable. And so as a resident, I didn't feel comfortable even really bringing that up. I didn't really even feel comfortable negotiating aspects of salary or bonus or things like that. I, you know, you just kind of assume that this has been done before. It's going to be fair. And this is how we're going to do it. And you kind of go with the path of least resistance. And as a resident also, I think you kind of, I'm always a little bit of a people pleaser, but as a resident, you're trying, you're spending so much time trying to make sure you're doing the right thing, not just for the patients, but making sure the attendings are all happy and making sure the pay, you know, and so it just kind of went counter to how I felt, but I wish I did. Yeah. Well, I remember, you know, at our institution being told that everyone has the same contract, that it's not negotiable. It's not worth hiring anybody. Everybody has the same contract. Take it or leave it. So as a resident, yeah, you're just kind of like, okay, well, I guess. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes it's definitely true. And I, I've seen sometimes where they'll say that, but then, you know, there's a little amendments here. They're able to, and it varies based on who's negotiating on that side. If it's a if you're joining an institution, are you, are you negotiating with your department? Or are you negotiating with the entire university? Because they may not have the same the same goals. Yeah. Outside of verifying the contract and the commission part of it, were there any other unexpected things when you kind of got into practice? So for example, things I think about would be understanding how patients are scheduled with you compared to how they're scheduled with your partners, you know, things like that. I had no idea how patients kind of move through the system things like that. Did, do you recall kind of that learning curve? Yeah. I had thought of that initially just because in Atlanta, there's so many small private practices and there's certain areas that are so saturated. So, you know, we're are fighting for new patients, whereas in the community, there's not always that kind of fight. There's a lot less concentration. And so I remember asking that. And so a lot of, I think 
an equitable stake, if you're a new person coming in, you have a very immature practice. And I didn't understand what that meant, but that means that you're seeing every patient on that schedule for that day is a new patient to you. Whether they're an established patient with the practice or not, they are a new patient to you. And so you're seeing a lot of new patients. And by nature, that will cannibalize some of the new patients from an established partner that's there too. And so we actually had discussed that a little bit on the front end where basically if patients were referred to your more established partner, they're usually booked out at that point if they're established. And so they get the option of going with you instead for a lot less of a wait time, which I thought was pretty reasonable. And one thing that would be difficult, and this is not necessarily, sometimes the practice, especially if you're joining one person, is revolves around that person. The orbit is that established member. And then so, you know, you'd look on your schedule and I'm, I'm a team player and I don't mind doing some post-ops for somebody or pre-ops for somebody. But if it gets to the point where that becomes a default or, well, we can't get it on that schedule, so we're going to put it on your schedule and it starts dropping off your productivity, that's when it became a little bit of a hassle. And then you have to it's hard. To, it was hard to. It took me a few months before I felt comfortable enough to just put my foot down and say, "Hey, guys, like we need to, we need to figure out a system here. I can't have a clinic of post ops." Do you talk to the clinic manager about that? Do you talk to the people at the phones? For me, it was usually direct. I went. I would just go to the, the clinic manager. Was how I did it, or even the practice manager. Our group was a little different how it was formatted, but I would bring it up to both. You know, you also bring it up with the partner as well. A lot of times, a lot of things that are done are not done maliciously and they're not done with intent. It's just the machine works a certain way and it defaults a certain way. And if you're not actively trying to change aspects of it, it won't necessarily default in your favor. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. The part about, you know, that there's usually no malicious intent. And I think I made a lot of mistakes in the beginning with letting things go with the flow and, you know, like just, oh, well, you know, they say it takes a while to build a practice and okay, here we go. I I would tell residents or people who are early in their practice that you need to be looking at things and don't just assume that, oh, this, it just takes a while. Oh, you know, because there are levers that can be pulled to kind of help you structure your practice how you want while still taking care of everybody. And I just didn't know. I just didn't know what I didn't know. Well, it's also you bring a good point about the levers. Like you have to know the people and the parts of how a clinic runs because that's the nuts and bolts of your practice. Like who is my clinic manager? Why are they important? Who's my surgery scheduler? Why do I need to make sure I have them on speed dial? Like who are my front desk people? Who's going to be talking to insurance? Like all are the team of the clinic. I feel like I didn't appreciate that. As, as a resident until I did a year of general for a year. And I was like, oh, and it was just a single solo practitioner's practice, but a lot of different moving parts and people with different roles. So that if you do need to turn a, a lever to know who to go to and sort of what information to provide is helpful. You mentioned um, running your practice, running your clinic, following up on path and having lists of questions I need to run by. So, and so I, you know, I feel like definitely remember that quite a bit my first few years out and it's exhausting because it's like so many, lots of details and high volume of these like details of questions and people and paths to follow up on. And then the second part of that was just like moving my clinic on along itself, like actually getting through the 25, 30 patients in a timely fashion. Any tips on keeping up with your practice or what it really means to when you have a practice that you're running and managing and whether it's from your day-to-day getting patients moved along to patient care? That's something I feel like I'm still learning a lot and I feel like I'm still really in the early stages of it. The habit that I have and I think most people will have is 
you know, you have a certain number of hours in clinic and then that's or certain in the OR and that's what you spend there. And that, but that is not, it's usually not enough time to really get the rest of it done. So obviously, you know, I know everyone's used to notes take longer afterwards. And some, I know some lucky people that are able to finish their notes as patients go on and they can finish it by the end of the clinic day. I am not, I have not become one of those people yet. And so right now it does bleed a little bit into your personal life. You know, you're bringing these home. I have my work computers home with all the sticky notes on it, physical and electronic sticky notes and, and reminders to do patient calls. You know, I'll, I'll call patients, you, you know, I'll use an app in order to change the number, but I'll, I'll call patients for myself one at home to check on how they're doing on post-op or make sure that ultrasound guided needle biopsy actually got scheduled, things like that. I think over time, what I've learned, especially in my new group with some of the more experienced partners is they have developed certain people within the office that are their go-to people to follow these things up. And it's learned, the learned ability to be able to offload some of the clinical burden onto other people that are willing and have a little bit more time to do it. And I think that is, I think that's key because, you know, like you said before, if you're seeing whatever walks in and you're, you're full clinic, I mean, that it, you don't have much time to, you're spending all of your time staying afloat and you're not spending any time trying to enhance the process, make it more efficient and trying to figure out how things can be done differently. Did you know what kind of support to expect in your clinic when you started? So, for example, did you know you were going to have a, a nurse or an MA who would be dedicated to supporting you or helping you out? Did you know what you needed? Looking back, how does that change how you think about that now? You know, I didn't even think to ask that on the front end. What I did know is I wouldn't get a resident. And I knew that would be after <laughs> having done this myself, I found a newfound appreciation for what residents are doing. But I've been in several different practices now over the last two years. And I've had my first job, I, was, I think it was pretty well supported. I had, you need 1.5 MAs is what I've been told, which is impossible to hire. But essentially, you need somebody to help intake. You need someone to help you know, intake the vitals and maybe do a little bit of the history. And then you need somebody to be doing all the outtake, taking it to the front desk, cleaning the rooms. And then you possibly need someone, depending on the office, to be cleaning scopes behind you, setting things up, if you have a procedure to help set things up like that. And so these are all things I never really thought of because when you're in a clinic, when I was a resident, I was, that was me. I was doing all of that for the most part, you know, or with the help of the MA. And so it was just something I never was exposed to that type of practice. Yeah. And I remember not knowing what was okay to ask for and who should I ask this for? Like, because as a resident, you're used to just kind of running on your own and doing what needs to be done. And so, yeah, it's a big shift for sure. We assume that there's something wrong with us. Like, I, I just assume that it was me that wasn't fast enough or efficient enough to see my patients. Or it's hard to kind of say this is actually a system, right? The clinic functions as a system. There is a team. There are processes that take place for patient care, whether it's intake out the day of the clinic to how do I follow up on these details that we have to think about what are our resources, what's the process, and what do I need to make that process work for my practice, the way I practice, you know, and that's a hard thing to kind of step out and think about in that way. I, I'm in the mix of it. It's just hard to step out and be like, okay, what's the bigger picture? And spending time investing in kind of training people who are working with you to kind of know what you like, you know, because spending that extra time can really improve efficiency because they'll start to anticipate. They'll start to be like, oh, yeah, she always likes you know, for these patients or that sort of thing. So I didn't know that in the beginning and didn't know that that was an important part you know, of building the team around you and getting everybody to work together. I think I felt 
too much of a responsibility to do it all, which is not the right way to do it. There's too much to be done. And it just, you can't do it all. And when you were talking about your sticky notes and everything and how, you know, in residency, you may not be the next person to see them. Running joke in our residency, we rotate every three months. And so, you know, the bottom of the note would always say, you know, RTC three months, like return to clinic in three months. And I won't be here. <laughs> Somebody else, you know. And so that was, I just remember laughing about that when I started practice because see them again in three months and it's you and they're like, hey, I'm not better. And you're like, oh, <laughs> now, now what? <laughs> yeah. Now what? Yeah, that, that, that was one thing I, I never thought of that. You know, you're going to start someone on Flonase and they're going to be all better. And you, I never put a thought about that in residency or you know, it wasn't flown, it was a rinse. And I never saw it back when they come back and they're not better. And you're just like, I don't know what to do with you now. And what I learned to do, honestly, was for a lot of these complaints, it's very common community general ENT complaints, like, you know, a little bit of definitely some oral fullness, the clicking TMJ, burning mouth, things that I was seeing a lot of. I actually would write out a system, like a step-by-step system. And so I put everyone on step one. And I'd give it six weeks or three months, and then they'd come back if it wasn't working. And then I'd at step two, and I usually would have three or four steps. And that way, if I see this, you know, it's, it's the worst feeling to see someone on your schedule and be like, oh, this is going to be bad. You know, I hope they're better. <laughs> I really hope they're better. But that way, at least you have the next clinical step in your mind and ready to go. And that way you're not, you know, I don't think it's also good for resources so that you're not immediately referring every TMJ source out, or you're not referring everyone, every you know, I have some neurotology colleagues that are probably sick of seeing tinnitus and oral fullness as well. So at least they, they have a pretty full workup and a full evaluation before you're sending people off to. Tell us a little bit, Chris, about what you've learned about establishing yourself, whether it's within a new practice or for you also with doing some locums in a hospital line in a hospital or another clinic. How do you establish yourself as a new person? And uh, you've had experience in several settings. And so that's rich experience. I mean it with respect. It is hard to do that. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I feel like the one thing I've been an expert on is chaos management and just kind of throwing into new system, new EMRs, new team every single time. I think one thing that I've realized is really helpful is a lot of the same things that made you a good resident will make you a good physician outside. You know, I try to be pretty available to my patients. I just talk with them rather than at them, I feel like, or at least I'm trying to make a conscious effort there. And, you know, I do the same thing with a lot of referring and consulting physicians. And so, I'm an open book. I'm pretty honest with them. You know, if I don't know the answer, a lot of times, sometimes, you know, you tell a patient or consulting physician that it's not the end of the world. You're not, it's not like you're being asked about staging criteria by your head and neck attending, and then you better know the answer. It's sometimes there are the answers that you can't know. And I think a lot of, I've gotten some feedback before on this, where it's just, it's sometimes refreshing to have a honest, like, I'm not sure. Let me get back to you on that. Let me talk to a friend of mine that does a lot of this. Let me look this up. So I think that's been really helpful and just having like this honest dialogue, all referring, you know, anytime that someone refer someone to me, consulting physicians, I would try to get back to them, whether usually it's by fax notes, but a lot of times if it's something interesting or a little crazy, it might be a text message or, you know, if you're on the same network, you can do it through the HIPAA secure apps. And one thing also is it's a two-way street. You just ask them how do they want their information. Some practices are just so busy. They just need an ENT card on the rack to hand to somebody when there's a problem, but some people really are invested. They did a full workup and they really want to know what's going on with their patient. And so if you just by asking some of the referring physicians and reaching out, a lot of them would be more than happy to tell you what they want. Yeah, I I agree. I think that referral network kind of building that and realizing those relationships. And once the primary care doctors know you and like you, 
that changes how patients flow into your practice. Because, you know, if a patient's doctor says, you know, I really like Christian Teal, he's worth the wait. Yeah, maybe he's booked a couple months out, but he's the one you want to see. Then patients will be like, okay, that's who I'm going to wait to see. And so those relationships matter a lot. In terms of training, what is it, what recommendations do you have for training programs on how we can better prepare our residents when they are coming out of residency and for that first one to three years of their practice. You, you, you just mentioned, you know, the honest dialogue, the relationship building. And in residency as a resident, I wasn't focused on building a relationship with my ER colleagues or my like, you know, consultants because we're so busy and we're tired. You're like on the defense. It's a yeah. defensive mm-hmm. game, right? Now, <laughs> yet once you get out, it's a complete role of reversal. And it is about that. And that brings better care. It brings collaboration. It brings better overall patient experiences. But what do you think we could do in training programs? Well, I think one thing is definitely a little bit more exposure to private practices. I, you know, I'm on the academy group where you see all of the, there's a lot of advocates for private practice right now. And they're always talking about how can we increase our outreach? I think engaging with them, talking with them, kind of seeing them more as partners would be helpful. There's certainly going to be a lot of private practices that are not going to be interested in that kind of outreach. But I think that it's kind of invaluable because you learn not just the patient care side, but the it's almost more holistic sometimes when you're really taking care, you know, you're going into a patient with subjective tinnitus and, and there's a limitation on what you can do. But if you can get that patient to leave happy and understand like, hey, you're not crazy and there are things that we can do, it's just, it's going to take some work. Those are, those are aspects that I didn't see quite as much because in an academic institution, the brand is the institution. They're coming to see UAB or they're coming to see your institution as opposed to you specifically in some instances. Whereas in private practice, especially if you're in solo private practice, I mean, you are your brand. I did learn that from, I, I did have one attending out in, in residency who did some private practice out in Australia. And that was something that he did teach me and that was pretty invaluable. But, you know, it's also useful to engage and find out how much a physician is worth. I think that there's a lot of disenchantment with how people feel with regards to reimbursements and, and the fight against insurance companies and CMS cuts are coming to are you know, always on the table. And I think it's important for people to understand what a physician generates for an institution or what a physician generates for a hospital, because it puts you in a little bit more of a level playing field when you're talking and you can know if you're fairly compensated or if you're not fairly compensated. There's a reason why the MGMA data is behind a paywall and it's difficult for you get access to it because your institution certainly has access to it. Yeah, very good points. When you think about kind of thinking back to when you were a resident, when you were looking for a job, is there anything that you wish you would have done differently as you were kind of exploring and meeting these different groups? I remember as a resident, you know, it's a kind of a a weird process because you're meeting groups. It's almost like Mm -hmm. dating and you're just trying to kind of see if there's chemistry, if you vibe well with the other Mm -hmm. partners and how did you go about meeting groups and interviewing? And are there things that, you know, if you could go back and tell yourself pearls of wisdom, are you things that you would do differently? I think I would have cast a wider net and talked to more. I think with the stress of residency, adding the stress of looking for a job was felt so daunting that, you know, it was something that you wanted to make quick and easy. You just wanted it to work. And if it wasn't perfect, I felt, oh, well, you know, I'll make it work. It's going to be fine. I've made everything work so far. We're going to handle this. But I do think putting a little bit more effort on the front end, as difficult as, you know, it is difficult to do, but you can cold call the groups, believe it or not. A lot of them would be happy to talk to somebody. They may not have even considered having someone out or they might be posting ads on a place where you don't see them. A lot of the job offers are going to be word of mouth and you can talk to 
you got to be careful, but you can talk to groups about other groups and get the lay of the land and see what group reputations are. I think you have to do your due diligence before you go in. It's hard, especially when you're going into private practice. I remember my all of my co-residents were all going into fellowship at the time. And so they would take time off for these interviews and cross country and things like that. And a friend of a friend is interviewing them for the program director and everything. But when I felt uncomfortable as going into private practice and then also asking, I mean, it was difficult to ask off time in general. You just felt like you were letting the team down to take time off, to go to a community in order to talk to a few different practices. And I wish I did that. Yeah. I wish I spent a little bit more time and effort on the front end, I would say. Yeah. There's not a lot of time in residency. (laughs) You're right. Did you shadow at all in practices? I remember there was one group that invited me to just come like shadow a day in clinic, which I thought was really nice and helpful to just kind of see how their practice runs. Did you get the opportunity to do anything like that? I did did it once. Classic for me, I think I coincided it with some sort of mobile lab cadaver course that happened to be in the area too, naturally. I remember going to the operating room, you see a few cases, and it, it was almost more of like a meet and greet, get to know, you know, your partner kind of deal. And I think it was useful on an extent, but it's hard to, you know, people always kind of ask you about red flags, things like that. And you can't really, it's hard to pick them up on a campus visit. I think you can pick up a lot of things on a campus visit, but it's really hard. And I think that's the reason why, I mean, I can't remember what the percentage is, but I think that's why 50, 60% of people are in a new job within, what is it, two or three years now? Because you don't know until you're really in it and you're, you become a part of the machine and you figure it on the back end sometimes. Any tips? For hospitals, practices, institutions that are hiring new grads, like any advice or like, hey, y'all should provide this information. This is actually what we need to know, or this would have been really helpful had I known this. Because the onus is all on us, right? We know that, but sometimes that also helps us know what we may be missing as well. Yeah, I I think regular check-ins. And the problem is it's easy to say on the recruiting side, because I think when it's, when it's recruiting, we're all, everyone's smiling. We're all happy. We're laughing at everybody's jokes. It's a completely different environment than when the contract is signed or if you're on the way out. I think that it's important to, with new grads, it make them feel like they're A, value, but also B, that they're, this is going to be a work in progress. Like this isn't going to be perfect. This is going to, we're going to work with you and meet with you several times and we're going to discuss what's working, what's not working. I think the fear and what happens often is that you get practice as a machine and then they are basically bringing on a new part and then the new parts expected to work or not work. And the fear is that you kind of get left off like that. And that if those are your two options, that's exactly those are your two options. You either work or you don't work. So understanding that if a practice is going to bring somebody on, that there may be some changes that the practice would be willing to make for you, even if you don't know what those changes might be at that point, that would be important to kind of at least pay lip service to on the on the front end for recruiting, at least. Yeah, I, I like what you mentioned, Gopi, about a check-in. You know, I think that you do meet a ton of people when you first start. I don't think I realized how all of those people kind of fit into how the machine runs, you know? And so it could be helpful to meet them again six months in and then be like, oh, yeah, actually, you know, I do have a question for you. And just understanding how the machine runs and having organizations being able to offer transparency of how things work and how it runs and what your role is in it, I think would be helpful for people coming in. It's also when you bring a new person on or you're hiring somebody new, 
if there is something that comes up, there may be a blind spot in the practice or the machine. And so some of that is, okay, recognizing that. And is that something that as a practice or an institution, we feel is important to address? Yes. You know, you also have to be careful, you know, who's doing the check-ins. A lot of times, you you know, if you rem- remember, like, you know, your partner, the people you're going to join, they're busy too. And so this might have been slightly outsourced to someone whose job it is to recruit or someone whose job description involves some of the recruiting aspects. And so they may not have the most up-to-date clinical information. Speaking of surprises, for me, call was such a big part of what we had brought up in the beginning, because as you hope you're taking the Scottish right call right now, my wife had a very heavy call burden at that time. And so we wanted to have a family at some point. We knew that we both couldn't be doing that simultaneously. And so, you know, I was under the impression that there was one hospital, but I think sight on, I was there at the starting clinic and I found out that we had enough, there was two hospitals actually that you call for. And then later in the week, I found out there was a third one that we're taking call for all at the same time. And so I, I distinctly remember, I think it was, I was probably six months in and I had not seen Lori, my wife, in I felt like a few weeks and she got called in for a case. And I was like, you know, Friday night at 8 p.m., like, I'm going to go in with you. I'm going to throw some scrubs on. We're going to go. We're going to hang out at the children's hospital. Obviously, that's pre-child, but those are aspects that you have to be careful where you're getting that information and could be cross-verified. Because like you said before, there are sometimes blind spots within the group that they're not aware of. So rounding this out, any final pearls or tips, you know, specifically speaking to the the new grad or the residents who are going to be looking for a job soon, anything that we haven't covered? I think we covered a lot of it on the front end. Honestly, you know, something I wish I'd take my own advice, but I think, you know, you have to sometimes expect to make mistakes in these scenarios. You know, you're coming in with limited information, you have limited time. I think that these are one of these scenarios where you can do, you can do everything right and still not have it work out. And it doesn't mean there's any bad players involved. You know, like we mentioned before, so, there are so many people that leave their practice after just two years. And, you know, statistically, that means it's highly unlikely that you're going to join a practice out of residency and retire with that practice. There's not a natural progression. You're not going to have all of the answers. And so I think that you have to give yourself a little bit of grace and a little bit, you know, don't beat yourself up too hard if there things happen because, you know, things do happen. For me and my family, there was a, a six week stretch where Lori had left her job and we had a new, our firstborn. And then I had left my job and neither of us had anything worked out. We didn't have any plans. And, you know, it's easy to feel like you kind of let your family down or you let yourself down. But, you know, in reality, a lot of these things are out of control. And I think you have to give yourself some grace for that. And if you take, honestly, if you take care of your patients and you take care of the people that need you, I, things do tend to work out. At least that's been our experience so far. Yeah, I think that's great. Great advice. It, there, you know, I, I see residents putting so much pressure on finding the right job right right out, you know, and if it doesn't work out, then it's a failure, but it's not. Life will go on and there's another job and it'll be okay. And it's just all part of it. Fail forward. <laughs> Fail forward. I like it. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for coming on. I learned a ton. My favorite was you are your brand. I'm going to keep, I wrote it down. It's just going to give you my affirmation. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really appreciate you guys bringing me on. Are you on any social media or if our listeners or anybody had questions for you, of course, they're always welcome to reach out through Backtable too. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm a millennial. So I feel like I'm on everything. You know, I have a norm, my personal Facebook page. I'm on Doximity and LinkedIn. My email address is just uh, my first initial and last name, C-G-E-N-T-I-L-E 514 at Gmail. It's just my normal email address right now. 
I'm always willing to help out and kind of talk people through if they're having any problem. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.